I think I say that every Sunday though, right? It's always a little bit of chaos right in the morning. Well, welcome here. Uh, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're going to camp out there for this morning. And this is kind of part two of what we started last week. And so if you weren't here, I just want to catch you up a little bit. Um, the beginning of chapter 14 begins, actually, let's back up a little bit more. In chapter 12, Paul starts to talk about spiritual gifts. And, and he mentions a few of them, and he's talking about them. He's talking about the importance of the body and how God has created you differently from me and that we are created differently for purpose so that we could act as if we're members of one body. You have your purpose. I have my purpose. Paul talks about how not only is, are they necessary, but in fact that they're indispensable. So whatever gift God has given you, that is good. And that's his choosing because he has purpose in that. And so he talks a little bit about that, and then he mentions a few of the spiritual gifts, but then takes the side tour in chapter 13 to talk about love. And it seems like kind of an interesting place to do it, but as we have been studying through this, what we've seen is that those in the church in Corinth were not using their gifts in accordance with the way that God gave them. They were elevating one particular gift above all the others. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean every single person in the church, but as a whole, this was concerning enough to Paul. And that one gift that was being raised up was this idea of the gift of tongues, that somehow if you had the gift of tongues, it showed your spiritual maturity, that that's where everyone should strive to have. And if you get that gift, then you've kind of attained some kind of spiritual maturity. And, and, and that's so concerning to Paul. But before in chapter 14, he begins to correct this, there's this chapter 13 where he says, no matter how gifted, no matter how talented, no matter how much you think you have to offer, if you're not loving one another, then it matters absolutely nothing. Your gifts and your abilities, even though they may be God-given, if they are not given with the sense of love towards your brother or your sister, then it's all for naught. And that's the reminder that we probably need to have often is everything that we do as the church should be for the, first of all, for the exaltation of Christ and then the building up of one another. And if me using a gift makes, makes me feel like somehow I'm now more mature and I'm more spiritual or I have some kind of different, greater level than you, then Paul's said, no, you, you totally misunderstood what this gift is and what it's being used for. And the other thing that I think is really important for us is, is maybe, I shared this last week and, and I've shared this several times, I grew up in Steinbeck, right? There's not a more conservative town to grow up in in Canada, probably. So the idea of tongues or prophecy or those kinds of things, they make me uncomfortable as soon as I say them, let alone read them. And so sometimes, maybe, you're, maybe your tradition is different. Maybe you have where those were normal parts of your experience or whatever it might be, and that's okay. But it's good for us to read through this and to recognize whatever God has gifted me with, he wants me to use for his good for the building up of his church. And so there's no better or worse gifts. There's no some that are more valuable and others that are less valuable. And that might sound like a contradiction with what we started with last week because right at the beginning of 14, he says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gift, especially that you may prophesy. But the context of what he's saying here is Corinthians. You all want to speak in tongues because you feel like that's some measure of spiritual maturity. Don't seek that because that isn't even edifying to the body. 
It's not edifying to one another unless those tongues are interpreted within the body. And and we talked about this. It seems like Paul's assumption is that that's a very rare occurrence. So he says, so rather than desiring that gift, desire one like prophecy, one that edifies everyone. And so what he's not trying to do is say, whatever gift you've been given, don't desire that one, but desire prophecy. He's trying to get them out of their own internal focus of their own desire for their gifts and saying, well, your gifts are meant to encourage and build up one another. And so he talks about that. He talks about tongues and he prophecy and we clarified some of those things as best as we can. And, and again, I probably left you unsatisfied with this idea of tongues because tongues is this very controversial topic depending on what church tradition you grew up in, whether it's currently used, whether it's uh, no longer uh, has a place in corporate worship. My consensus from the text here, my conviction, I should say, from the text, is that Paul is saying that it does exist, but that it's very easily misused. And so we looked into when Acts chapter 2 happens, uh, and, and the Spirit pours out at Pentecost, and all of a sudden people are speaking in languages that they did not know how to speak, and the gospel was being spread, and, and the people standing there were going, aren't these men's Galileans? How do they speak? in my language, and we looked at that appears to be what tongues is. There is a tradition that teaches that it's a, it's a spiritual language only between you and God. And, and my goal is not to disprove that, uh, because I, I don't really think that's worth fighting over, to be honest. But I did go through Scripture and show why I think that that is a dangerous theological stance to get when there's only one verse that says heavenly language and it's used in hyperbole. And so we've just, the, the goal is always to get our theology from what Scripture teaches us. And every other time we read about tongues, it's always with this idea of that it's a known language to somebody, but not to the speaker. That that individual is not aware uh, of that language prior, but all of a sudden God opens their mouth and gives them an ability to speak to somebody in a unique way. Then we clarified uh, the gift of prophecy and what's that, what that all uh, means because even saying that word, depending on the tradition you grew up in, you may think very different things. I remember it, we're part of the AGC, the Associated Gospel Churches of Canada, and I remember talking to our president uh, about a conference that he was at. And they were chatting uh, with, he was chatting with another president of another uh, conference in Canada. And the guy looks at him and he says, so do you guys have prophets in your association? And he was like, what do you mean by that? Let's clarify that. And, and that's what we want to do is when we think prophet, we tend to think Old Testament. We tend to think somebody uh, predicting what God is going to do as judgment on behalf of some lack of obedience. And that's what we see over and over in the major and the minor prophets is they're calling out saying, God has said, if you will not repent, if you will not turn from your ways and go back to him, these are the consequences that are going to happen. And that's the way we kind of think about the New Testament prophet, but the New Testament prophet is actually talked about in a very different way. It's not declaring new divine truth to God's people, but it's declaring truth about God that God has already revealed to us through the scriptures. So that may mean, and somebody texted me to ask this question, and we'll deal with this question at a later date because this is a big one, but that may mean as we open scripture and as we read it, we are being prophetic in its utterance. We are declaring the words that God has spoken. 
But that also may mean that God gives you some kind of insight into his character, something about him that that when you're sharing one-on-one with somebody, that you can be prophetic in your nature by declaring things that God has given to you. Now, clarification, that does not mean new divine truth. So that, that means you don't get to go up to them and say, God has called you through me to tell you, go and do this. I don't think that's consistent with what Scripture teaches us. What I think is consistent is where we are praying, we hear the Spirit, we, we feel God's leading us in a certain direction to talk with somebody about perhaps their future, perhaps their giftings, and we can say, you know, I, I think maybe God's calling you to something different than where you are right now. Would you consider that? And then they, as we talked about in Thessalonians, then they can test those prophecies, test to see, is this consistent with the Word of God? Is this true with God's character and who who he is? And then if it is, then we see, God, what are you calling of me? And then open up our hearts to hear from him. So that's a bit of a, a longer explanation, but I think it's important because as we talk in verse 13 to 25 here, it's, it's a continuation of that topic, but there's a slightly different focus now. Paul's focus all up until now with 12, 13, and the beginning of 14 has been on the corporate body. And it continues that way in a sense is everything that is done is meant to build up the church. So you, you ought to love your brother and sister and want to encourage them, want to help them grow, want to help them mature in their faith. But now Paul also talks about the reality that within your church at any given point, and Banff is a beautiful example of this, is we have no idea who might show up. And so we don't know where they're at. Are they here because they've been attending church their whole life and they're on holidays and they long to come and to hear God's word proclaimed? Great. Are they here because God just got a hold of them this week and they've never entered the church and they have no idea who God is or what he is about? Well, we have no idea. And so Paul says that here as well, that there, there's an expectation that there will from time to time, and perhaps in that early days, often be people who didn't know about the truth of Jesus. And so in our building up, in our exaltation of one another, as we use our spiritual gifts, if they confuse the unbeliever, then we're also misusing them. And so you're going to see that be brought out as well here in the text. So let's read uh, these verses together, 13 to 25 of 1 Corinthians 14. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are assigned not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is assigned not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are all out of your minds? But if all prophesy, 
and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, as you listened or, or read the text uh, along with me, there may be a couple of questions that you had in there that from even last week where we went, hold on, I thought Greg said this last week, and it seems like Paul's saying something different. So we're going to clarify a few of those things as we go here. But before we get there, let's deal with this very first thing. So he clarifies again, if you're going to speak in tongues in, in the corporate setting of worship, then make sure that, to pray that you may interpret as well because if you don't interpret, it isn't helpful to the body. So then in verse 14, he says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. Now again, depending on the tradition that you grew up in, this is hugely important. Is Some traditions are way on one extreme versus the other, where one is it's all about deeply meaningful spiritual experiences. It's all emotion-driven that I have an experience with God, that I, that I leave that place just radically like just something happened to me and I'm just overwhelmed by that. Some churches on the other extreme go, emotions are all bad because they're all clouded and misunderstood and only what is in the Bible is true, so we just focus on that and that alone. Yes, they're both good. The problem is when we go and we rely only on Scripture, and don't hear me saying this wrong, because this is the only thing I know to be true, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't reveal things through his people. Again, we're new divine revelation, according to what the book of Hebrews says, I don't think a modern-day prophet could come and declare some unknown mystery and say, this is who God is, and, and this is what's the missing piece that you don't know. I don't think that can happen. But can God use his people to encourage and challenge me and maybe rebuke and call me out on something? Absolutely. And they can be prophetic in that sense. And sometimes we get, on the conservative side, we get so concerned that if I'm only going to read this, and I don't want to let my emotions cloud my reasoning. But here's the reality is that God's created us both with emotions and with intellect. He's created us as those two parts. And to only focus on one and not the other misses out on so much. And so conservatives need to be, uh, the conservative church needs to be far more aware of the Holy Spirit's mysterious qualities and what he is calling us to do. And being aware that God speaks to us in unique ways and that he can have deeply profound, meaningful impact in our hearts in just a nature walk as we walk through and see God's creation. But on the other extreme is those who live only by that, God, fill me up today with some new thing. They need to be reminded that everything that we need for life and salvation, according to 1 Peter, is found within this book. And so we need to slow down and use our minds as well. And so we have this balance that we need to find. And, and I'm, if I'm honest with you, I don't know where that balance is. We've probably never really centered their good. It's more like the pendulum that swings and we go over a little too far on this side, we got to correct that. And then we go a little too far on this side and we got to correct that. That's just probably going to be the rest of our lives as we learn to balance those two aspects. So what does Paul say? I'm going to do both. I will pray with my spirit, but I'm also going to pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I'm also going to sing with my mind. I had a unique opportunity when I was in Bible college to do a course on church music. Don't throw rocks at me yet here. Um, what my job was, was to go and pick several 
modern contemporary songs that were sung, and several hymns from the hymn book, and show some that were completely heretical and had nothing to do with the truth of God. It was a lot easier than I expected it to be on both fronts. And so there's this realization that if the, if the truth of what we're singing does not declare the truth about God, it doesn't matter how fervent we are singing. If it's wrong, it's wrong. So we need to engage both aspects, our mind and our heart as well. And we can be swept up in emotion, yes, and so we need to sing with our minds, but we can also be swept up with over-intellectualism and lose sight of the emotional aspect of it. So Paul says, let's, let's do both. Now, the difficult part is, on the one side, it's easier to be like, well, here's what the Word of God says. I'm only going to be intellectual in this sense because it's written for us. The other part is a little bit more difficult to quantify. And so it feels like maybe that's dangerous. But we even read this in Philippians 4, verse 7. Paul writes this, The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We've used that passage lots. When we go through a difficulty, a challenge, some kind of crisis, perhaps an illness or a death in the family, and we're grieving. This truth is that the Holy Spirit will be at work in us in ways that don't make sense, that we don't know how to quantify. And I saw this firsthand just a couple of weeks ago, a friend of Shayla and mine from back in in Melfort where Shayla grew up, um, about my age, uh, passed away in a vehicle uh, collision. And he left a wife and four young kids at home. And as we kind of have been following the journey online, I have been so challenged by what his wife has written and the journey of here's our grief and here's our pain and here's what God has done in the midst of all of that. And as an outsider, someone who doesn't know Christ, they may be reading this and going, how on earth could you possibly have peace amidst all this grief and sorrow and pain? There's no easy explanation for that. There's no just quantifiable answer of, well, this is how it works. Yet she's done her best to explain, here's the gospel of Jesus. And here's where my hope is found. And here's why I can have the hope that I will see my husband again. And so while it might not be easy to quantify exactly, Scripture does also tell us that we do have some way to communicate some of those truths. Just never completely satisfactorily, only intellectually. So there's these two parts at work within us. And and again, I'm not giving you how to balance those. I'm challenging you to figure out how to balance those. Commentator Keener writes this. This is really good. The fact that he's a commentator, his name is Keener, will never cease to make me laugh every time I read from him. But he says this. Neither the pure rationality of modern churches nor the pure emotionalism of other churches in other traditions would have suited Paul. His view of worship engaged the whole person. I think, man, how true that is. So, Paul is concerned that the Corinthians specifically, but us to activate both aspects of it. Because he says this, how can an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving if he doesn't know what you're saying? If you're only acting emotionally and they have no idea what's going on, how are they going to enter into that? So activate your minds as well, Corinthians. Now, he doesn't condemn tongues. In fact, he says two really positive things about it. He says, you may be giving thanks well enough, right? So he's not saying you're being dumb, saying you're just not being fruitful for the church. You're not being helpful there. 
And then the other thing that he says is, I thank God that I speak tongues more than all of you, right? So he's, he's saying it's good. It's a proper gift that God has given, but when misused, it loses all of its intentionality. It loses what God is trying to do. And so his conclusion is simple. I would rather speak five words that people can understand than 10,000 words in a tongue. You may have a little footnote there with that 10,000 number. And what that means, that 10,000, that's the highest number that in, in Greek language at that point. So that was like saying infinity. Right? So Paul's point is very simple. He's not trying to be like there's, there's a quantifiable difference of if it's, if it's you know, 100,000, then it's worth it. He's simply trying to say, you could speak in tongues all that you want. Back to verse, or chapter 13, where he says, If I spoke in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am nothing. Is in the same way he's saying here, is if I could speak in every language possible as much as I could and just declare over and over and over and over, he says, I would rather speak five words that people can understand to build them up. And I think of it this way is, there's not a lot that you can say in five words, is there? That's maybe something that we, especially in our time, we have a lot of filler words and a lot of ums and ahs and all these things in between. And yet Paul says, even in just those five words, I can be more productive with the church than I can with 10,000 at a time. So he's not condemning it, but he's continuing to press home this idea that misused, it loses sight of everything. So don't focus on some kind of spiritually driven experience, but focus on both the spirit and the mind together. Pratt writes this, Love's focus on the edification of others governed Paul's attitude towards tongues in a remarkable way. For him, this is the key sentence, for him, public worship did not honor God if it did not edify the church. There's the sentence, hey? Public worship does not honor God if it did not edify the church, no matter how earnest, dynamic, and personally fulfilling that worship might be. I had to read that one several times as I was thinking this through. Is if it does not edify the church, then is it even, even honoring to God? That was very, very convicting for me. Then he says, verse 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be what? mature. This reminded me back, and I hope to you as well in Hebrews 5, and I don't have it written here, so Becca's going to put it up for us on the screen. If you could, Becca. Sorry, that wasn't very much notice, was it? Says this, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basics of the principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the world, in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, practice to distinguish good from evil. This is not a new thing in Scripture. We find this several places. Where the writer, whether it's to Hebrews or whether it's Paul here, whether it's another place, is they plead, don't be children in your thinking. Don't be immature. Don't be focused only on yourself. And that's a reality that we face so much in our time, in our culture. There's probably never been a more individualistic time and culture to live in than we do right now. And all you have to do is turn on the news to see that. My rights, my opinions, my beliefs, my focuses, my, 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 my. 
And it can be so dangerous. And the Christian can get sucked into that as well. And Paul says in a gentle rebuke, right, calling them brothers, don't be children focused only on you. Don't. That's a rebuke that I think we and, and I need to hear so often. The flashiness of tongues can distract us into thinking that it's some kind of sign of maturity when according to what Scripture says, it's actually the exact opposite. It's us trying to build ourselves up and in that condemning ourselves because we don't even understand what these gifts are meant for. So Paul is showing us the importance of being mature. Um, Frederick Godet wrote this. He says, It is indeed the characteristic of the child to prefer the amusing to the useful, the brilliant to the solid. That's another real good one. It's so easy to think childlike. And man, I've shared this with you lots. I have super bad ADD, right? So like bright and shiny can distract me real easy. And yet sometimes that distraction can take me away from anything of substance and I can actually think it's substance until you get underneath it, right? And you, everyone who's been a parent, you've done this with, your, with talking about food with your kids, right? The cake looks fantastic and it tastes great. And if you ate only that, what would happen? There's no substance there. Looks good. Tastes good, seems good, it's shiny and, well, maybe it's not shiny, I don't know, maybe a cake is. But you see it with this context, and all of a sudden, if you ate that way for any period of time, you would see just how unimportant that is, and how important what healthy food is. And yet, that's probably a lesson that I have to learn every single week, too. Then Paul paraphrases uh, from Isaiah 28 here, and this, this is where it can be a little bit confusing if we lose sight of the context. Sometimes people will try and use these verses here to say, okay, look, Paul's logic here goes against what he said just a few verses ago, a few, a few verses prior. And so because of that, we're just going to throw all of this out. And so let's make sure we understand this correctly. Throughout, Paul has been saying that tongues are for the believer, just not in the, corporate, or not in the context of corporate worship and less interpreted, though he seems to think that's rare. But here it seems like he's saying now tongues is for the unbeliever. So then which is it? Is it for the believer? Is it for the unbeliever? Well, this is where we have to look to what he's saying about the passage in Isaiah so that we really grasp what his point is here. In this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah wrote this to warn Israel, specifically the northern kingdoms of Israel, that God was going to exile them to a place where he would use strange tongues and lips of foreigners to speak to this people However, even when this was going to happen, the people would not listen to the Lord because they couldn't understand the judgment coming from the Assyrians because they couldn't hear the words. Or they could hear the words, but they couldn't understand them. So again, Pratt writes this to help it, and this is really clear, so I want to I use what he says. It's a little bit of a longer uh, quote, but it is clearer than anything I could say. He says this, As the church spread throughout the Gentile world, Unbelieving Jews heard the message of the Messiah Jesus in foreign Gentile languages. People of strange languages proclaiming God's gospel in tongues throughout the world signified judgment against many Jews continuing unbelief. Paul concluded that tongues are a sign for unbelievers because God designed them to communicate the gospel and Christian teaching across linguistic borders. 
They are a sign in the prophetic sense as a curse against those who do not believe. So that's what his point is. And the, the depth in, in that analogy that he's using is just crazy. I literally had this moment where I was sitting in my office reading through this, and I had this exact question going, okay, I better clarify this. And I opened up this thing, and I started to read through some of these commentators and what they meant. And I looked back at Isaiah, and I literally went out loud, huh, well, that's obvious. How did I miss it? Right? Like years of studying these things, years of teaching on, tongue, or on, teaching on spiritual gifts, and I totally missed the context of what Paul is doing by quoting this. Tongues are an evangelistic tool to bring the gospel to others whom you cannot communicate with. And so are they a sign for believers or unbelievers? Well, yes, depending on which context you look at it in. And so when you think about it in that context, tongues are for the believer because God uses the believer to speak something they don't even know how to speak. But they're actually meant for the unbeliever so the unbeliever can hear the truth of what's happening. And in this context, the Jewish people who were no longer listening to the voice of God, no longer listening to the prophets, no longer concerned with living any kind of a righteous way, God in his providence, in his unusual ways of working, goes, the Assyrians are going to declare the gospel to them in languages they don't even hear, and it's going to be a sign of judgment because they have ignored my voice for too long. The depth to which this speaks to, it's just, it's just amazing. And so Paul writes this entire chapter to clarify because the very position in which tongues are to be used was being misused, misinterpreted, and was confusing everybody. Now, he goes back to, in these last few verses, this reminder that there's unbelievers present as well. And so we need to consider that. One commentator said it this way, Paul has an eye Always, sorry, let me read this again. Everything Paul says and writes, he always has one eye fixed on the unbelieving people. So while he's speaking to those in Corinth, he's also looking over at those who don't understand Jesus yet, who have shown up because God has been at work in their hearts and wants them to hear the message of the gospel. And Paul says, if you're so caught up in praising God that they can't even understand what's happening, then you've lost sight of what the gathering is for. So he says this. This is why you should desire prophecy, because first of all, prophecy builds up and edifies the whole body, which we discussed and looked at length last week. But speaking prophecy will also build up the heart of the unbeliever who is in the gathering. In fact, Paul says it so strongly, a quote from Zechariah, he will be convicted and fall on his face in worship, declaring God is not because we've walked up to that individual and exposed their entire hearts for everyone to see. Don't, don't misunderstand what's happening there. But that as God is being declared, as God is being exalted, people are hearing the word of God being preached. They're hearing and seeing and reading, and God reveals to their heart, I have a desperate need of a Savior, and his name is Jesus. The word of God has the ability to do that unlike anything else. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 says this, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give account. So don't try and think you have to come up with some 
irrefutable logical argument about the gospel to become, some, to become an evangelist. All you have to do is declare the word of God because it speaks far greater and far more depth than we could ever with our own minds. And so Paul's trying to get them to see that. Don't just desire these spiritual experiences because you're, you're missing out on the big portion of what the church is meant to be. One commentator that I read said it this way, is even in our corporate worship, we're doing evangelism. There's a pretty neat thought. Even in our corporate worship, we're doing evangelism. Too often we separate those things and we think of them completely different. This is why we talk about discipleship as often as we do and the importance of connecting with others and being intentional with others. Is, is discipleship evangelism? Yes. Is discipleship worship? Yes. Why make a distinction between them? And so when we think about it in this context, as Paul's saying, when you exercise your gifts, the ones that God has given you, in the corporate assembly of the body is when an unbeliever comes, they will be convicted because of what has happened, because of the Spirit of God being used in you, and they will see that there is someone that they need, and his name is Jesus. Praise the Lord that God is the one who does that, not us. So there's two things that I want to leave us with, and we're going to talk about some orderly worship and a little bit more of this next week, just because of the reality of, of some of the controversy here. There's two things that we should remember is first that all of our gifts are not meant for us, but they're meant to be used for others. The building up of one another. Always have to keep that in mind. The second thing is that if it cannot be used in the context of evangelism within worship, then we misunderstand what worship is. So let's hold fast to those two truths. Let's be reminded whatever gift you have, no matter how important you may think it is or how unimportant you may think it is, God has gifted everyone the way that he has chosen because he is at work and we are one body working with one purpose. Let's remember that. Let's pray and then we'll move into a time of communion. God, thank you for this text this morning. And, and even though there is some difficulty in interpreting some of these things, there's some confusion based on certain traditions that we may or may not have grown up in. Help us to always look to Scripture and try and interpret it based on it, not on what we think is true. So God, those of us who maybe grew up more conservative and, and would rather just not even think that tongues are a possibility, help us to see in this text that Paul doesn't condemn them. But he says there's a time and a place. Those of us who are maybe on the other extreme, where we're so used to using all of these types of gifts Help us to see that there is a time and a place and that it's meant to be for the edification of one another. Simply put, help us to care much more about our brothers and sisters than we do about ourselves. May our spiritual gifts not be some kind of a notch on our belt where we can say, look how spiritual I am. But rather where we can say, here's how I want to serve the saints. And then God, lastly, as we've discussed here, as we worship you, we pray that evangelism would be done. That those who do not know the name of Jesus, that they would hear who he is, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. That Jesus wants to restore relationship between God and man in a way that only he could do. And that we need to confess that he alone is our Savior. 
God, may we think differently about the gathering, about worshiping together, and about what it can do and what it can accomplish. God, we are so grateful. As we flip back a few pages and talk about communion this morning, I pray that you would impact our hearts and our minds, that we would put these two things together, that we would understand that it's only in the blood of Jesus that we have any hope at all. God, thank you. Amen. So if you do want to flip back just a couple of pages to chapter 11. One of my theology professors in school would uh, say in various ways that if you don't see Jesus in the text, if you don't read the gospel in the text, you're reading it wrong. And I think even in something where we go tongues and prophecy and, and the contentious issue that this was causing in the church, even in that we see the gospel. And how important it is to remind ourselves of the cross. How important it is that we as believers slow down and remember what's truly important and where our focus needs to be. And so once a month we come back to this text to remind us of the truth of the message of Jesus, the truth of the cross. Not because we forget it, but because it can very easily, we can lose sight of its importance. So let me read 1 Corinthians 11, starting in 23. It says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. As we read that, as we are reminded Jesus is preparing his disciples, I was just reading this this morning in the book of Matthew as Jesus starts to declare to his disciples, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to have to be handed over. And I'm going to be abused. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to ultimately give my life. And the text says that Peter rebukes Jesus and says, may it never be so. There's the one really harsh thing that we see Jesus say where he looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples that they would understand the true heartbeat of the gospel. And we need to slow down and remind ourselves of that as well because we live in such a fast-paced time where there's so much to do and not enough time to do it in, or so we think. Where our focus gets on to things that are less important and the things that are most important we lose sight of. And so once a month, we read this and we bring ourselves back to it. We examine our own hearts and we ask, God, would you reveal what's in me that shouldn't be there? Would you reveal to me the areas of my life where I'm not giving you control, but where I'm holding on to it and would I let go of it? These are truths that we need to hear often. I think it was Spurgeon who said, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Because we need to be reminded of that. 
And so when we think about it and Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, the reminder is that Jesus willingly went to the cross because he and he alone could forgive sins. His blood was shed for us. And, and all through the Old Testament, we see the sacrificial system. And, and we were talking about this with Smonga the other day, and he made this comment that there must have been a lot of sacrifice and there must have been a lot of blood. And, and he kind of asked that question that we all ask, why? And as we read a text like this, we're reminded because that no amount of blood of bulls and goats could actually forgive sins, as it says in Hebrews. But it was a sign pointing to one day someone's blood will be spilled once for all, for the forgiveness of all. And so we have that now in Jesus. So Jesus eats with his disciples and he takes the bread and he breaks it. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's, let's pray really quickly. And then as we finish, let's eat together. God, remind us of the truth of the gospel every day. We are never too mature to go back to the gospel. We need to be reminded of it so often. And so, God, we thank you that Jesus was preparing his disciples, and now we have been prepared and that we remind ourselves every, uh, every month that we sit down together as a body and we go, it's in Jesus and it's in Jesus alone that we have salvation. So, God, as the text says, may we examine our hearts. Would you reveal to us the things in there that are not of you? the things that show that we do not trust, the things that show we haven't let go, whatever it might be, the anger that we hold inside, any and everything that exists there that shouldn't be, God, we pray that you would help us to release those things. And remind us that it's only because Jesus offered his body for us, that it was broken for us, that we have forgiveness. So God, in this moment, as we eat together, may we remind ourselves of the sacrifice that you paid for us and that that sacrifice is sufficient. Amen. Let's eat and remember. And God, as we hold the cup in our hands, which represents your blood that was spilled once for all for the forgiveness of sins, we are reminded that no sacrifice is necessary anymore, that you were sufficient. But God, we're also reminded, according to the text, that we do this because we proclaim your name until you come again. We are reminded that death is not the end but that we will be reunited with you in heaven. God, we are so grateful and thankful for that. So while this is a serious moment, may it also be a celebratory moment where we remind ourselves that the pain and the hurt and the suffering that we all have in our lives right now, that those things are temporary. And that when you come again, we can let all of that go and we can go be with you where there will be no more tears, no more sorrow. 
all because of the blood of Jesus. God, we thank you beyond what words can say for your sacrifice. Amen. Let's drink in remembrance of him. God, as we prepare to head back, whether it's to home or to work or to whatever various things are on our to-do list today, may we not lose sight of you in all of it. May we not dichotomize our spiritual life from the rest of our life. But may we always be looking to honor you and bring you glory in everything that we do. So God, give us opportunities to love people today, whether that's our coworkers, our friends, our family, whoever you, are place, you have placed in our path for this morning. God, we thank you for all that you are doing in our life. Would you receive glory and honor from how we live and how we act and what we do today? Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. Of course, it's been a, a privilege to worship with you. Uh, if you would like to chat and visit, we just ask that you would do that uh, outside so that we don't have to have too many people in one spot. And the great news is it's a beautiful day. And by next Sunday, it might be two feet of snow. You never know. So let's enjoy what we have and what God has given to us today. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Bye-bye.